Welcome to the Story Forward podcast. We are your hosts. Uh, looking at my screen, I see none other than Christian Wynn, co-founder of the Story Fort Literary and Story. Am I making that up, Literary and Storytelling Fest? What, what's the official no, name? That's that's a good good way to like put that? it. Yeah, yeah. We, all right. We, have, we tell stories of all tell varieties. Stories. And, no. uh, let's not forget he is the director of said. I am. Fest. Best co-founder and director. That's right. I, of yes. course, am Larry Rosen, director of nothing, co-founder of maybe a few things. Uh, we are here today to present another episode of our music-themed second season. We are roaring through mid-season, heading to the back stretch. Today, yep. our guest is Bill Crandall. Mr. Rolling Stone. Uh, well, not anymore. He is the vice oh, president right. of original digital content programming and production for Sirius Audio. I mean, yes. um, satellite. Yes. I met Bill Crandall in 1991. And at the time, I don't know what he was doing. He was my friend Bob's roommate. And he had an idea to start a zine about the San Francisco music scene. That zine was called Big Whoop. So Bill Crandall was the first person to ever publish me Wow! in 1991. So Bill did that for five years. And then he became, after that folded, because those things fold. What are you going to do? Make it your career? No, of course not. You're, he, you know, he was young, younger than me. He was must have been 23. Uh, after that, he hooked up with BAM magazine, which you Boiseites probably don't remember, but it was actually a legendary publication in the Bay Area. BAM stood for Bay Area Music. And it was big enough that they used to have yearly awards called the Bammies. He did that till 1999, and then he hooked up with Rolling Stone, uh, and then went to AOL, and then back to Rolling Stone. In a in a sense, actually, it was Winter Media, which is the larger umbrella company that you know Rolling Stone is underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, he was at Madison Square Garden. He was at Pandora, and then most recently, uh, his job at Pandora became a job at serious you know i i i'm i'm not, I, this is bad but I, it is called you know i always forget if it's serious or serious satellite radio yeah or serious. if there's another name to it too because remember there were two and then they became one yeah I'm not, i can't keep track for sure but bill gives us a pretty good idea of how it all works too bill gave us a good idea of how it all worked now i would say of all the people that i knew in my 20s bill's the one who really did it you know, he's, he's the one who grabbed the brass ring and got a hold of it. And as we learned during this interview, a lot of that is because of his, I wouldn't even say willingness, but his eagerness to evolve as the industry evolved around him. You know, yeah. him as, as a guy who cut his teeth in the zine world, he doesn't think content is a dirty word. You know, he's no. okay with all stuff content and he's okay with, with, having his job be creating alliances and creating connections and coming up with new ideas. And I remember years ago when he was already very successful, I think he was still at Rolling Stone and I was on a very consistent arc of not being very successful. He posted a picture somewhere of him and I think he might've been backstage with a boy band, some boy band mm -hmm. in state or someone. And I told myself at that point, well, that's what I'd have to be doing. If I was, I, God forbid, I would have to hang out with a boy band, pretend like I like them. But uh, I think Bill's possessed of something that we're, we should be possessed of. 
And no, that's it's so positive. He's not arrogant in any, any manner that I could really pick up on him. I'm he sure he has his definitely own. not. He is excited and positive. And I forget, he won the... This is before we had instituted our formal policy of asking our guests to drop a name at least once during their interview. But he won the name drop of dropping. He does. <laughs> He probably didn't even get to go all the way across the No, I'm sure he wasn't. Because since then, he he posted something on social media about how once his someone, I forget the circumstances, but the end result is David Bowie changing the title of one of his stories. Like seeing it, maybe, and and, just, and grammatically finding some bad grammar. I'm not, I'm not doing his justice at all, but <laughs> direct interaction with David Bowie. That's pretty fantastic. But he has some great <laughs> stories along those lines, you know, and about his whole career. And you guys go into the old school time machine and get back to... Oh, I do we ever have. Yeah. But like, we, we like to do that kind of stuff because we have we have time that we've lived through because we're, we're getting old. We're getting old. Yeah. Uh, Bill, Bill, he's, he's kind of a Zelig-like figure. He's been there when a lot of things have happened. Yeah. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. So let's get into this interview. It tends to run a little bit long, as most of the interviews I conduct do. Um, so <laughs> what, we have we... a special. Well, we have something special oh, right. to talk about too. Right. We have that a... on the backside. Yeah, um, Mr. Larry Rosen is our correspondent. This. I am going to tell week. you the story of the worst rock and roll interview I ever did. <laughs> I, I well. I haven't heard this story yet on our podcast because you've got to record it still, you know. But Here's little bits and pieces of it. Yeah. I will tell you, this, it involves a hyped Seattle band from the early 90s that probably had, that has disappeared into oblivion since then, uh, a motorcycle and painkillers. Oh, okay then. Well, I think I have heard parts of this story before, but I'm looking forward to it again. But thanks uh, for taking that spot this week for us, Mr. Rogan. It's the first time this season that you have, so you have a, you're a storyteller, and we get to hear a story from you. But yep. uh, yeah, I, I was had never met Bill, and just I still haven't in person. But uh, he's back east, and I'm out west here. But he, I felt like I really got to know him just because he he's a talker in the best sense, and really gives it to us. So uh, should we just get into it, Mr. Rosen? Yeah, let's let Bill tell the story now. Okay, Bill Crandall. Uh, Bill, actually, first, before I delve into your your past, uh, which I played a very small part of, tell me right now, what is your job? So I'm a, a VP of original content at SiriusXM Pandora. Okay. And, and, and again, before I go backwards, did you end up at Sirius? Was there a merger or a buyout or something that brought you from Pandora to Sirius? Yeah, they, they bought us. So I was uh, the head of original content at Pandora and then Sirius uh, bought us and now we're doing it across platforms as we say in the biz. Nice. And, and so again, there were twists and turns 30 years ago. Did you ever, did, what did the word content mean to you 30 years ago? <laughs> I don't. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that we actually said the c word ba uh, back in the nineties. You know, we just kind of wrote articles and interviewed bands and taped people. But I don't. I don't know that we ever actually said the c word. We were content. We didn't have content. <laughs> oh, very nice. So uh, I only think that because recently my wife bought this big sign for our kitchen that says "produce" on it. You know, it's like this big rustic sign that goes on the wall. But if you knew my wife, you understand that it's actually pronounced produce. 
That's I awesome. see it every day and feel guilty. So, all right, let's go back to the beginning. Bill, I met you in 1991, I think it was. And I know you as my coworker, Bob's roommate, who was starting a zine. Fill in the blanks behind that. Before, when you started that zine, which was called Big Whoop, which I think was timed perfectly and in its own way made a pretty good dent uh, for what it was. And this is in San Francisco. This was in San Francisco and you were 23, 22, 23. Yeah, yeah, just right about that. What was your aim coming to San Francisco? Were you a journalism major? So I started out, um, I was graduated college, started waiting tables, there was a recession. And a friend of a friend, you know, was doing a Beats magazine, which was like the tower pulse of Nobody Beats the Wiz record stores. <laughs> so brother-in-law hooked me up with a friend and they said, well, you know, do you know jazz? And I said, do I? But I didn't really answer the question. So next thing, a day later, I was on the phone with Chick Corea and Dave Koz and a bunch of people. So I kind of learned how to interview people from there. And then we just decided that it's not incredibly fun waiting tables and living in my parents' house. So we all kind of did the thing people did in the 60s. And we just went out to San Francisco and I crashed on my friend uh, John's couch. Uh, and then we ended up, you know, I, I think the opening weekend I was there, Starship the Next Generation was playing in the polo fields in San Francisco. And we we're kind of like, there's got to be other music and there's got to be other things to focus on. And we really couldn't find it and then we're like why don't we start one of our own so then we just decided like let's make our own logical thing to do let's start you know uh, make our own magazine where we interview the bands that we like because this was so important and we were in the lower hate we had this whole like persecution complex because the lower hate wasn't as thought of as well as the upper hate and that was all hippie and we were you know generation x and everything and it was larry rosen who actually gave us the the um subhead of our magazine the tag line it became big whoop you did big whoop for after the boom so we coined it for after the baby boom we were we had this whole big fight with baby boomers at the time you know so before before okay boomer was a thing larry coined for after the boom Uh, yeah larry came to seattle armed with that uh that angle of of argumentation for sure i had a real problem with that and i remain convinced that hippies ruined san francisco But okay, so so how many guys were involved at first? And, and I'm actually kind of curious. It's interesting, given where you ended up, that your idea then wasn't, I'm going to hustle and try to write for BAM or who else, you know, I guess, or the Tower Pulse. Yeah. And instead, we're just going to start something and take on, because I don't know if you remember, a few years later, I tried to start a magazine that actually Christian was sort of a peripheral part of mm-hmm. about motorcycles. And I hadn't considered the part where you had to have money and talk to printers and advertisers and yep. distribute it and all that crap. What made you decide to take on that? Yeah, one step I skipped is um, a friend of mine, John Houlihan, who's now a, a music supervisor in Hollywood, just was up for a Grammy for Deadpool. He did all the music for Austin Powers and a whole bunch of things. He twisted my arm when we were both in Westfield, New Jersey, where I grew up. Um, And he was selling ads for the Westfield Chamber of Commerce newspaper. And what happened is like your local sweet shop and record store and card store would take out like a quarter page ad in order to give back to the town. This thing would come out quarterly and you would get your like downtown Westfield and they'd have these ads. So through that, I actually learned how to go around, knock on doors, sell advertising, get people's ads, do the rates, have a rate card and everything 
everything. So because I had that background, like of coincidentally writing and then selling ads in two entirely different jobs, like, you know, neither of which I knew anything about, which was jazz columnist and uh, ad seller. Um, when I got to San Francisco, I put those together. I did actually, first thing I did is I wrote a review. I wrote a live review of some blues singers at Slim's for BAM. Um, but then I just, for I, I think from having that background, decided what I, it would be pretty easy to start one of these my own. And that was the beginning of the zine craze as people started self-publishing and do this, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I, I wish it were part of the blog craze because this stuff would be, you know, documented a lot more online. <laughs> But we were, yeah. we were the generation who actually printed up, you know, pieces of paper and drove them around San Francisco. Yeah, and I guess I guess the element we're leaving out was the importance of Macintosh computers. Exactly. Yep. yep. Well, that's what made all these zines possible. Yep. Uh, I think I still have a few somewhere around here. Yeah, <laughs> I hope you do, too. I might have a, a copy of the old uh, Zealot was the name. Zealot. Of the yeah, yeah, I have a couple of those, too. Um, yeah, so I'm curious, maybe a quick follow-up with the zine starting out there at that time. So did it kind of create the kind of a backlash kind of wave against the boomers and or did I, music kind of crop up around the zine culture? I think so. I think there was probably a chip on the shoulder of the sense of we were feeling very much like uh, uh, so we're in our 20s. This is the 90s. Indie rock is just starting to break through, which would then obviously become Nirvana and everything else. But we were feeling that the San Francisco hate Ashbury tie dye shirts and everything felt really like a, a relic from the past. And there was a lot more, a new vital culture coming up at the time. Um, and that that was I, and, and those were the people who we were meeting at the print shops, making their own zines, trading them back and forth, making silk screening was also really big. And that was big part of punk rock and everything. Everybody was you, you weren't just a band. You were also making your own T-shirts and skateboards at the time. So all of that, I think, was very uh, generational for, you know, for, the, for that age. Well, so not only that, Bill, but the, what, the people you just described, the Haight-Ashbury hippie, they, they were relentless. Yeah. They were the establishment, like they were the culture. So what you guys were doing was really, um, it was kind of punk rock. I do you pretty well back then. And the most amazing thing happened after about a year of doing Big Whoop, you became kind of a cool man about town. Like you knew people all of a sudden and you knew bands and you put on shows, you know, and you put out an album. Was that part of the plan or was that a bonus? And how did you, I know you must've been shocked that you were cool. <laughs> Yeah, that that was we actually just needed money. And we did a show at the DNA Lounge with bands like Heavy into Jeff. And then we did one at Slims with the Brian Jonestown Massacre and a bunch of other bands. So we started realizing that, um, you know, that that was a, another way to just pay our printers, you know, more so than anything. But um, but yeah, it was it was a, a, a it was a time where before everybody could broadcast anything that they wanted, which is a glorious thing, and I'm all for on TikTok or YouTube or whatever, you still actually had to talk to the press. So if you were at a band like the Brian Jonestown Massacre, you actually hounded people like me. And I'll never forget being on the 22 Fillmore and Anton from the Brian Jonestown Massacre handing me a Maxell of a tape that I needed to see. And it said Oasis on it. And he's like, you got to see these guys who were 
opening. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. So Bob and I went after seeing Johnny Cash at the Fillmore and we went over the bottom of the hill uh, and we missed the Brian Jonestown massacre, even though we were on their guest list. My apologies to Anton. And there was Oasis playing at the bottom of the hill. But at that point it was still, people were shuffling around to be like, there were local um, label reps who would take us out to dinner from you know, Capitol Records and IRS because they wanted to break their bands in the zine uh, <laughs> craze, you know? So, you know, that that was a, a very, very different time. We, we were the media. <laughs> and, and it went on for a, you had a pretty good run. And at some point, did your ambitions change? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess I was, I got engaged and four years in, it wasn't as cute anymore. We were really good at hustling enough money to cover our printing costs. Then we knew we could stay up all night writing jokes, editing articles, and that was where our ambition ended. Like, in other words, we once we had enough money, like if we were a band, we have enough money to make the album and tour, we're done. You know what I mean? Like, so that's kind of the way Big Whoop was, is we, we never um, really thought too much beyond that. So yeah, I would say the ambitions changed uh, when all of a sudden four years in, uh, we were still borrowing cheap uh, from roommate and driving it around and just breaking even. <laughs> so, so the next step for you is BAM magazine. And for people that don't remember BAM, I was actually explaining to Chris, who grew up in the Bay Area, he didn't really remember BAM. Like BAM was a big deal in the Bay Area back then. Oh, in yeah. The yeah. yeah. Explain how you hooked up with them. Was Larry Carlat, Carlat involved in that? Uh, De uh, Dennis Erickson, actually. Oh, Dennis was, yeah, Larry Carlat was involved in uh, Rolling Stone, my next step. Great guy. Um, so BAM magazine actually started um, in the wake of Rolling Stone leaving San Francisco and going to New York in the 70s. So then all of a sudden there was a little bit of a cultural void because San Francisco was so associated with Ben Fong Torres, etc. So ba BAM did the first uh, cover story on Ben Fong uh, Torres. Um, and uh, from there, it became uh, the Bay, Bay Area musician that became Bay Area Music Magazine, then California Music Magazine. And the Motley Crue formed in the, uh, you know, pages of BAM magazine, you know, putting one ads together. So it became like this, you know, place where musicians would get together. And quite frankly, you know, first articles, and I might get some of the actual names wrong, but the types of bands like Green Day, etc., like those would be art, Metallica, Beck, you know, before California was a big enough state, as we know, that you could actually, um, you know, get a, a reasonable amount of reach just by uh, promoting California bands. And that's what we did before they kind of took a bigger stage. So it was kind of like AAA music for, <laughs> yeah, I mean, AAA meaning like the baseball analogy yeah. uh, before you get to spin and you get to uh, Rolling Stone. And it's also your hometown for those uh, the shows as well, those uh, bands. And what was your job there? Um, I started out as the Bay Area editor um, and then I became the overall editor of BAM. Thus giving false hopes to all of us who wrote for Big Whoop. <laughs> that's right yeah I, I, i'm gonna be the editor of bam yeah no i it was that was exciting you're right i skipped the point where it was like i actually had a job i had a wife and i had a baby and i had a salary from bam magazine which is so that was that was thrilling to me because i always in, in during the day bob bob and i was my main partner on big whoop um we would work during an ad agency during the day and then when everybody went home at night we would kind of make the magazine <laughs> you know like cinderella style so it was actually thrilling to be able to go to work and get paid to actually edit articles and you know that kind of thing and did that did that i mean how 
how did that fly with your old Big Whoop crowd and with the crowd in San Francisco that knew you as the as Bill from Big Whoop? Um, okay, I think um, there was a Bay, a Bam was more associated with um, from the era that it came up with, with the Bammies, which then I also got involved in. And probably be, because of what I said about Motley Crue, there was kind of a journey vibe that people thought of with bands. In one sense, there was some of that tension there. It was also another thing I faced when I went to Rolling Stone. And, and I don't blame people for this. I'm not one of those people who say like, you don't know what Rolling Stone is. If you think about like, I do believe brands own who they are and it's, and, and people are busy and they have the right to live their lives and they don't need to get everything straight but man i'll take you back through the archives of bam or rolling stone or whatever and you're like wow there were some pretty <laughs> pretty cool people spotlighting some pretty cool musicians all the way through and it you know might have been tom cruise on the cover but did your publication write about new order on their first album i don't think so. you know so like they're, they're, that's all through rolling stone as well as bam right. for bam was operation ivy or whatever you know and i was curious you know i was telling asking larry you know on the music journalism angle, he's he's expressed a, a few stories of awkwardness, of like a little bit of fanboyness, a little bit of ecstatic moments and beautiful moments. Like for you in that era, when you made that switch, what were maybe a couple of your favorites or worst or just strangest experiences? Yeah, so, so okay, for BAM, um, it was the 500th issue that we were doing and we decided to do a packaging job on it. And let's like look back at the history of BAM. So that's what we were doing. And then I went through and counted who has been on the cover of BAM the most. And it turned out that it was Tom Petty. And Tom Petty was also doing 20 shows for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers 25th anniversary at the Fillmore at the time. So we decided let's put Tom Petty on the cover. So I contacted his publicist and they said, and he said, Tom's not doing any press around this whatsoever. This is just for fans to celebrate and they're playing things so i did kind of a, um you know a, a rebel move at the time i was like well tom petty doesn't decide who's on the cover of bam i do <laughs> so we're like we're putting him on the cover anyway i don't care if he doesn't interview so we did kind of like one of your first aggregation pieces where we went through and just found a bunch of awesome tom petty quotes all throughout the years and some of it was like uh you know, we haven't had our first AM hit yet. Kids really like the, you know, they, they, they love the rock and roll on the FM radio, but we want to be on the AM, you know, like that. That's what some of the quotes were from the 70s. So we put this whole collage of Tom Petty stuff throughout the years. And I wrote an essay about Tom Petty and, and the, the guts of it were while other people, Spring, Bruce Springsteen, heroes of mine, et cetera, have kind of, you know, were uncomfortable with MTV and the videos I'm going to put out like Atlantic City and then all the way the other way. Now I'm dancing with Courtney Cox. So like really, swag. Tom was always really comfortable in his own skin. It's just like he didn't mind if he was in a cheesy mini mall. There's just a guitar around him and he's singing his song and he always just kind of stood there like John Lennon, just I'm in the middle of my songs and I don't care. It's not good, you know. So it was a little bit of an appreciation for kind of Tom Petty, either the world's smartest dumb guy or the world's dumbest smart guy, like depending on how you look at him. And I've always just had such respect for him with his simplicity as a lyrics, lyricist, et cetera. Um, anyway, it turned out he read it uh, when he was doing his Fillmore stint and then his publicist contacted me and then he wanted to do an interview. So okay. I had to explain to the staff that I was like, okay, you know how our last cover was Tom Petty? Well, our next cover is Tom Petty. So <laughs> I actually got to go to his uh, hotel room, Christian, and, and hang out with him um, a few different 
different times then. I did a series of interviews with him. I interviewed him four different times, but I got, got to hang out in his hotel room uh, in Japantown. And, you know, I asked, I remember asking him the question. And again, this is before social media and everything. People were more honest. And I said, does it scare you now that rock isn't doing particularly well? And we've now had, you know, REM just had a big album that tanked. Pearl Jam had an album that tanked. And he looked at me, he's like, well, they made shitty albums. So whatever, <laughs> you know, it was like, it was that loose of a conversation you know and now it's like wow that would be all over twitter and everything if tom petty said you know eddie vetter and michael stipe made shitty albums it would go back and forth all day interesting point because it would only be on twitter if you put it there (laughs) that's right that's right and any any rock journals probably would put it there and by the in case you're wondering chris where the term uh pearl jam is just bad company and shorts came from this guy right here (laughs) that's fantastic (laughs) (laughs) That's about right. I, mean, I was never much of a Pearl Jam guy. I've learned to appreciate them a little more. But same, same. Oh, gosh. Compared, it's funny. You know, it's it's called age. There are these bands. I remember Green Day I had a big problem with. And, Pearl. you know, you know, these are bands that I actually really just add age to them. And, you know, bands that you really don't like when you're 23, if they stick around for another 20 years, they're, they're the who all of a sudden. Well, you know and, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, that's when I watch we played basketball with Jeff Allman. Okay. Yeah, some of us in Seattle, and you know, he'd be lurking around the clubs and stuff. So he kind of right. fun, fun, fun to talk about now. But Larry, go yeah. for it. And if and if I watch, you know, I watch the beginning of the Pearl Jam documentary all the time because it reminds me of being twenty five years old. Yeah. Um. So Bill, so so when you get to BAM, you're a professional music journalist. You're around professionals. Then you make the jump to Rolling Stone, and at this point. First, I want you to tell me how that happened. And then I want you to talk a little bit about where does Bill, the rock, rock and roll fan, have to take a backseat to build a rock and roll journalist or the rock and roll lifer, really? Yeah. So um, I was, Bam was, uh, I was moving down to LA and uh, to, to do Bam from LA because there was more to do there. Um, and at that moment, all of a sudden, you know, boss called me in and said, are you going to LA this week? And he's like, don't, we're closing. And I was like, whoa. So <laughs> I then decided let's not move to LA. Let's go back East, blah, blah, blah. Wife and baby traveled cross country. Uh, and from there uh, contacted a friend of a friend, got in touch with Larry Carlat. And uh, I then got the job a month later or so at Rolling Stone. Um, and yeah, so for me, and it was funny, I remember when I was right out of college, I put on a jacket and tie and walked into Rolling Stone and gave them my resume. I still have my rejection letter. Like I thought I was going to like walk in with my little bureau and like, here you go, like here, you know, and they're like, thank you. And they were professional enough. They sent, they sent me a nice rejection letter that I still have. Uh, but anyway, so then after that, I, uh, I got, I got the job for rollingstone.com and I was the, the editor there. And I was thinking I'll slide over to the magazine, you know, because I'm a magazine person and then starting to do online journalism and seeing the immediacy of it and also seeing the limitlessness of it. And I remember there was one time David Frick, who remains a, a, a friend in the industry I've worked with, he's at Sirius XM, David and I still work together. But I remember there was one time where, you know, the magazine had to cut the amount of pages and his Keith Richards interview that had all this great Altamont stuff in it and Brian Jones stuff. And he was 
pissed because you know they cut it and i was like hey david uh we have limitless he's like you do and that's began like the beginning of a beautiful relationship where all of a sudden you know some of the best journalists and everything realized that oh wow this is limitless over here and then i started becoming a stat nerd and i was like look at how many people are actually reading this even more so than the yeah. magazine you know and then from on and on i you know really got the bug of digital but given that you walked in there with a suit on just after you graduated what was it like to walk in there as an employee yeah it was uh it was cool i i i do think that that at rolling stone that was one of the places where as a as a kid growing up like if, if i wanted to be a left-handed reliever from the for the new york yankees first and foremost then probably second would have been you know editor at rolling stone so it definitely felt like you were you know um you were in that club so um and it, and it was that kind of a club all the way through everybody was really cool it was a bunch of really cool people meaning you know that and everybody was cool about being cool you know so it was like if somebody was on tv the night before there was you know i i remember i was on um uh, behind the music with the spice girls you know and the next day you kind of just pretend nobody saw you because everybody's on tv we're all on tv don't don't make a big thing yeah okay larry was on vh1 yeah whatever that's that's called tuesday you know like so there was there was it was definitely a lot more than that whereas other places and and i really enjoyed my time at rolling stone but it, it was a lot more that culture whereas other places that i worked with was a lot more you toot your own horn and you celebrate people and employee experience and all that whereas rolling stone was just like there's 25 people behind you who want this job so get over yourself yeah. <laughs> and you know so i wonder i wonder if that has anything to do with the era too if if it's just more now it's more likely that you have to advocate for yourself and push and um was there ever without naming without you know slagging on any artists musicians etc what was the first time what did it feel like the first time you had to go cover something that you weren't interested in yeah um let me think that's a gr uh, great question i remember for big whoop covering ned's atomic dustbin and that was when I learned the lesson that good song on the radio does not equal interesting storyteller, somebody who has something to say. And mm -hmm. as I was sitting there conducting the interview, I was, it was the first time where, back to your fanboy question, usually I'm like, oh my God, Elvis Costello just made a football analogy. Everything he says is interesting. I'm a mere mortal and this is Elvis Costello. This was the other way around where um, another one was live. I remember interviewing the band live at the Phoenix Hotel. Um, and I forget what, the, that must've been for Big Whoop as well. Two of the dudes were named Chad and they were former <laughs> lacrosse players and they were all from like, you know, Pennsylvania. They were from like a pretty wealthy suburb of Pennsylvania or whatever. And I'm like, I'm interviewing guys who are like two years behind me in high school where the, the singer is a bit of an iconic class, but Chad and Chad just kind of played lacrosse and bass. You know what I mean? So there, there was definitely finally where I started realizing that with the radio machine and everything in the wake of Nirvana, there were a lot of people that it was a good living doing that in, whereas I think it used to be for you to be in the English beat or, you know, Lords of the New Church or something, you probably had to be kind of an avant-garde kind of person to pursue that because there wasn't a lot of money in it. All of a sudden, there was a lot of money in being an alternative rocker. Maybe some of these 
people would have been in hair metal, you know, 10, 10 years ago. So in that sense, there were a lot of bands that were just like new band, new song, go interview them. And you started realizing that, you know, just because somebody can write a tune doesn't necessarily mean that I care what they right. I, wait, I did see Ned's Atomic Dustbin um, back in, I think, the Moore Theater. And it was like Scottish grunge, right? It was kind of, they had the look going. They didn't have the sound going, but they had the full on regalia, if I recall. They wanted to be, I think they were Scottish, right? I, but I could be totally wrong on that. But they definitely had a look that didn't fit their sound. I forget, yeah. And the other thing I wasn't savvy enough, Christian, at that time is because I was one of the zine dudes, um, we didn't always get the singer I, and Ned's Atomic Dustbin trivia, you know, answer to a trivia question. They had two bass players. I think they gave me one of the bass players and his, you know, his job was probably mostly to do interviews with zine people to, you know, so anyway, but so yeah, that was, that was Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I think yeah. you're describing that period in rock and roll history when all of a sudden the people in the audience weren't scary looking anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and you remember the bands, they were just like sponge and but like, and again, nothing against sponge, but it's like, you just feel like if it were five years earlier, sponge would have been a hard rock band. They would have, you know, followed Aldo Nova. Yeah. Or something would have been sponge, but now because Nirvana happened now, everybody's, you know, everybody's a, you know, alternative band. There was money in it. So after Rolling Stone, you go to AOL yeah, to winter and then Madison Square Garden, which I do want to talk about a little bit. But I feel like this is the point in your career where are you still writing at this point or now are you more of a content guy? Yeah, that's a, uh, I think I become a content guy because so Napster happened and all and all of a sudden file sharing's happening. And I realized in talking with my nieces that they don't read Rolling Stone in order to find out. They're starting to get recommendations from their friends directly to them and they're sharing music with each other. Um, and it, it, everything has changed. And also I, we were, do, a Coldplay was doing a performance and it was a, a video uh, uh, performance live stream. And we were covering it at Rolling Stone and it was being broadcast by AOL. So I was like starting to like write about things that people don't read as a, I, I remember one summer in college, I, I spent a, a summer in Yellowstone and just seeing a blurb about REM being in the studio. Those, that was the only way you could find out any morsels. And there was like song titles in there. Oh my God, like this was gonna be such an important part of your life, these words that they're stringing together, you know? And, and that the only way you could find it was in Rolling Stone. Um, and all of a sudden I'm starting to realize that, that my nieces, there's a whole generation that was seeing artists directly and you know at their computers and not having to read about it and people also sharing music with each other and not having to read about it so um i actually from there uh had, had uh, eric flanagan who is a, a great great guy very talented person as well um he was uh wrote for the rocket bam actually bought the rocket so the rocket in portland and seattle and i had 
the great pleasure of working with Charlie Cross and other people. So uh, all four of those magazines were working together. I saw that Eric was at um, AOL and I just picked his brain because I was just like, hey, I'm over here at a job where we're writing about the things that you're doing. <laughs> like, how do I do some of that? We had breakfast together and he's like, funny enough, I need a head of music, you know? So then I just uh, became the head of music. And then right to your question, Larry, it became a lot more that we were doing a, a, a program called Sessions, which was everything from a McCartney to Beyonce, and you could read, you know, beyond TV like audiences for them to do that. So one of the aspects was, is that we would have a writer do like a cover story around that, but it was the cover story as well as the video and the photo gallery. And then at that point we were in the C word because then it was all about how are we going to shoot Beyonce and what, what, what are the wardrobe changes, you know, so now we're making, you know, and was this yeah, what year is that? I mean, just to give us a little context, yeah. So. Sure. Yeah, this is the year 2006. So I was at Rolling Stone from 99 to 2006, and then I left uh, to go to AOL to run AOL Music in 2006. That's funny, because that was making me think of when I was at ESPN and putting together packages for WNBA.com, and it was the same sort of thing. Here's the story. What kind of video are you going to put with it? You know, it's a whole package of content. You're right. Yeah. Eric was Eric Flanagan ever at, I thought, I thought I met him. I don't know. Not important. He, um, he ran MTV a few years ago too. The big VMAs that, that was at the garden. I was at the garden and he was running MTV. So that whole thing with Beyonce and everything he was running. So yeah. This is probably, you wouldn't know if he was ever at Starwave because that's who, it, it was a tech company, cut this out. That was at, um, <laughs> in Seattle that I was working for ESPN there. But they also had us, I think it was Mr. Showbiz was the site. I, I think so. That was Eric because he was okay. in. And I met him because I interviewed there and I, yep. they, yeah. gave me, they gave me a pop culture test and I got Lorraine Gary and Lorraine Bracco mixed up. But I didn't get the oh. job. Oh, there you go. I don't know who either of those people was. <laughs> the wife on Jaws versus the. The, the uh, Thanos therapist. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know what they look like, but I don't, I couldn't. Totally, I'm like, oh yeah. She's the wife on Jaws. Like, no. So we had, we had a thrilling moment um, at AOL with McCartney's camp too, as we started um, it, that on AOL music, uh, we started the site Spinner uh, that was really for passionate music people. And um, Paul McCartney had a track by track that his manager wanted to give us, which was videos of him talking about every single song. And we had a player where you could actually play, you know, the album. And what we convinced his manager to do, it's like, could we get a hold of it so we could transcribe it as well as do whatever so that people could read along as they're doing both. Anyway, the whole thing did fabulously well. We got a big promotion out of it. McCartney was into it. And then he invited us all down to the um, Highline Ballroom to uh, check out his band and everything that we saw. But it was one of those moments where it was like, you know, I had to have a tough conversation with Paul McCartney's people that like, nobody wants to see you talking about an album that they haven't heard. But if we could play the album and read your commentary as well. So it was one of those things where it was like putting the right pieces together at the right time, which I would say not to be corny about it, then became a passion of mine is like, when do you do video? What do you share on social? When do you read? Blah, blah, blah. As opposed to, I, I think in that sense, I am a content person that 
I'm not somebody who long form journalism, no matter what kids are doing, I want it to be 10,000 words because that's how I read. Like, I understand, like, you know, okay, if they're communicating through TikTok, then TikTok is the vehicle that you should get with, you know. So in the spirit of that, um, that, that was one of those moments where I actually felt like instead of just doing, you know, the, the what others would have done, which is like the big long interview with Paul McCartney, like let's actually make a multiple media experience that's going to get humans to enjoy his new album. And he appreciated it. So it's, it's, it's almost um, a happy accident. Oh yeah. That it turned yeah. out that someone with, with a background in straight music journalism got excited about content creation. Yep. The timing was excellent. Yeah. No. And I would say, Larry, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great observation because people have asked me before, you know, I, I've, I've never taken a job in the music industry and I have enormous respect for people who do, but I'm not really a music industry person. I would sooner be a sports writer than, you know, I would say at the time, then be, you know, a job in the music industry, because first and foremost, I like to, uh, I'm, I'm, interested in humans attention and who, what makes people laugh and what makes you cry what makes you say ah like I like talking about music and sharing experience I was you know I, I was the guy in high school who made you a mixtape with annotated lyrics in there and handed, yeah. you know then you, you told me you liked me as a friend and you went out with Johnny lacrosse but it's all good you know and but anyway so I, I was more yeah, into yeah. that aspect of it telling you why I thought the cure was really cool than just somebody who wanted to push cure albums you know but does that make it easier when you are faced with, I don't know if you actually get to meet Paul McCartney, but if you were actually walking into room to meet Paul McCartney, does it make it easier that you could be maybe more excited meeting Derek Jeter? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I've always, I, I'm always looking at what is the best thing that can happen to entertain an audience as opposed to how do I get to meet my heroes. Um, and maybe it's because I learned at an early age that they don't always necessarily remember you. It's not like maybe, maybe I've been through it a few times. And then I also think it's, sorry to go age guy, there's the older than them things. When, when, when you Perfect. remember when somebody didn't exist then it's like, it's harder to get too excited about them. So like Billy Joe Armstrong, fabulously talented musician, but I remember when he was not famous. David Bowie's been famous my entire life, RIP, but you know, there are, there, there are less and less of those people who are walking the earth that are just that famous. And I think that's what Mick Jagger's recent Instagram, you know, thing was about. It's just like, it wasn't that brilliant, but it was Mick Jagger out at the Broken Spoke in Austin, Texas, having a beer. Mick Jagger somewhere in Charlotte, like he was just putting pictures up of him in regular places being Mick Jagger. You know what I mean? If you turn that into, you know, Adam Levine, the Maroon 5, we're, we're so used to seeing Taylor Swift, big famous stars in the elements and being a part of the real world because they're all such part of the real world with social media. But like Mick Jagger was not part of the real world when we were growing up and suddenly he's in Charlotte, North Carolina. Those two things exist at the same time, Charlotte, North Carolina and Mick Jagger. Like that's really the end of the joke and the juxtaposition and it works. So I think for me, there's a, probably a handful of those people, but yeah. Yeah, well, as uh, we're kind of getting towards the end of our, right. our time here, but I know Larry's got a couple of follow-ups and then we can, I think 
the notion of what next, especially with all of what you've done? I mean, what do you see? And well, Larry, you can follow up on that. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna, I guess, we're gonna skip over some stuff then and let's get you to Pandora and Sirius because um, I know that you guys just put out an announcement a few weeks ago, or actually last week, um, about a new project that is combining authors and music. And that to me seems like the ultimate content creation only because I like both. You know, it speaks to me. Yeah. But so tell us what that is and how it came about. And, and and maybe you can fold in kind of what your job is now. You told us what it is, but what it yeah. is. So, so yeah, so I, I, we do everything from, my team does everything from the top screens, the homepage editors that you, you know, would see on SiriusXM and Pandora, Pandora to a lesser extent, it's more personalized, but there are blasts that come up for different people that we do, um, as well as original content creation, everything from uh, playlists to music podcasts. Um, so, and, and volume radio. So volume radio, uh, is, is a channel on Sirius XM 106. And, um, it is the only, um, talk music station devoted to music. And it's also our, our only music station that's cross genre, if you look at it that way. So it's basically sports radio for music is what's going on all day long on volume. So it's kind of those three elements that we uh, weave together on our team to do. So Audible, um, it came about, it's called Chapter and Verse, and then Audible wanted to partner with, it, uh, with us on it. Um, and it came from an idea actually where um, there's a lot of calendar following that goes on in content creation where it's just like, it's time for Valentine's Day. It's time for like where everybody, you know, does the same thing. So St. Patrick's Day was coming up. Um, I have more than a little Irish in me. And um, I had, we had the idea of Tana French, the author. We're like, wouldn't it be cool instead of doing the green beer um, you know, uh, uh, singing about whiskey kind of St. Patrick's Day thing. Irish, uh, you know, there's a real sad history and there's the troubles and there's famine and there's all this stuff. And there's also a wonderful tradition of storytelling and a great sense of humor and blah, blah, blah. So let's take an author who knows this really well, Tana French, um, and let's talk about how all that stuff informs her mysteries because you see that in there, you see the cracks in there. And if she would talk about that, um, and she did, it was amazing. Her just talking about everything from the Clancy brothers to the Pogues to contemporary artists that she liked and everything. And kind of just talked about just the, the twisted, wonderful, beautiful, sad world that is Irish music and balladeering and storytelling as a St. Patrick's Day feature, you know? <laughs> so from there, then we figured, wow, that was so cool to do with one author. There's a lot of people that as they're writing um, music, uh, as they're writing books, um, they're traveling to regions of the country, they're listening to music, there's music in their head. Let's have them talk about the invisible music that is kind of like the, uh, you know, compendium soundtrack to their works. Um, and that's what we're doing. So we've had uh, uh, um, authors come in and, you know, uh, tell us basically what's in their head as they're writing their prose. That's a really cool idea. Um, so I guess as, as we wrap it up, yeah. um, have you... There's one, one thing that I'm noticing is intact, though I haven't talked to you in 25 years, is that you're always really excited about what you're doing. Has there ever been a time when you weren't excited about what you were doing? Ooh, um, I think my job switches would probably 
point to that is I'm definitely, I love to build. I love to create. I love ambiguity. I love that the other, not too long ago, I played a song, uh, a pavement song. And my daughter said, are you playing that because it's on TikTok? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I started realizing like how people get music in an entirely different way that I am. Alexa was serving up a pavement B-side to me because it trended on TikTok due to a dance craze. And my daughter knew the song and she knew a pavement B-side. So, so that does not give me a knee jerk. Like you should listen to the whole album. And in my day, like it, it, it does the opposite. I'm like, wow, what a fascinating thing to see that another one of my daughters doesn't care at all about Lord Huron. But if there's one song and 13 reasons why, then that becomes her favorite song. And she cares about that. Now that doesn't mean that she wants to go listen to their whole catalog or whatever. She's fine with that one song. And that's a beautiful moment in her life. She's not like me. Now I have to go buy all their backs. You know, so I, I think that I love to continue to follow how are people communicating around music? How are they loving it? How is storytelling happening? Um, and I think Larry, we probably had this conversation a long time ago, like the Beatles ruined it for everybody in a lot of ways. It's like there used to be just great girl group singles and there were a lot of people who made really good singles. And then somebody, you know, told, you know, the, because the Beatles came around and that became the format, then all of a sudden, like, you know, Smash Mouth had to make 18 song albums. Like, <laughs> why? They make, they make delightful singles in the albums. Probably not the right format for them, you know? So I think um, in, in the spirit of that, anytime I find myself at a job where it's time again to do the new season because here comes the draft, here comes the playoffs, or here comes the next REM album, or here come, and I feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again, as opposed to trying to figure out how people create and how they enjoy music, um, then, then it's kind of not my favorite thing to do. Whereas right now, um, man, what's happening between podcasts and playlists and TikTok and social media and how all those things go together. Um, I, I remember uh, bringing one of my daughters uh, to a show, Declan McKenna, and the guy at the label couldn't believe that she knew him and he had to interview my daughter. And it's like, how'd you find out about Declan McKenna? She said, Instagram. He was like, <laughs> like, it's like what, what do you mean? You know, so I think um, that that's... Um, I, I think I become tired of things when it starts to feel like the format stays the same. We do it over and over and over again. And the person 10 years before me did it this way. The person 10 years after me will do it this way. I love it when I'm, when I'm uncomfortable and trying to figure out how things go together. You're definitely the right man for the right time then. Because <laughs> things change really fast now. But you have to give, you know, the Beatles did one thing for us who've ever interviewed bands. They made bands want to be interesting. Yeah. You know, yep. interviews before the Beatles fans were not interesting. They were like interviewing high school football players, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> want to be clever and interesting. Now it can backfire on you. I've interviewed bands who really wanted to be clever and interesting and weren't. That's right. Yep. And it's good because the Beatles paid close attention to the Marx Brothers movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like they were they were trying to be like these funny, witty, you know, people that they saw in films, you know, and they ended up creating like what rock stars should be. I know. Well, thanks for coming by, Bill. This was great. Um, I could have really spent many, much more time getting your story. And I, I promise it won't be 25 more years before I see you again. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, what you said towards the end, it's it's really uh, a great way to kind of close too, as far as innovating and what we're trying to do with what we do in Boise around story, tree forward and story forward, trying to find new ways to tell stories. And the last project you're talking about is kind of mirroring something we're going to have at, uh, at story forward um, next year. Um, so it's cool. Yeah, that, that this stuff is I don't know, in your brain and your spirit and the same way I feel like a lot of the things we've been doing um, with, uh, you know, story and storytelling and, and uh, blending that with music and other media, but cool and stuff. Can, like can I give one quick plug as, as yeah, a, just a, an example of a program that I'm so over the moon about is um, we had an idea for a program called All Music is Black Music. And it's just by doing what I do for a living, you just realize everything you listen to drakes back to African-American roots. So um, we were able to actually, you know, get Roger McGuinn on the phone and him talking about how he wrote Eight Miles High because they were just stoned with the birds in California trying to rip off John Coltrane, his horn sound, and they accidentally invented psychedelic rock. And because of that, kids now go see Tame Impala at Coachella, you know, but they have no idea that this was a bunch of Californians just trying to rip off an effort. You know, that times a zillion is the story of pretty much every contemporary uh, uh, pop music so the program is called All Music is Black Music. It's on volume as well as so you can find it on the SiriusXM app in Pandora. And we reached out and we got the um, <clears throat> uh, combination with the African-American Museum, the National uh, Museum at the Smithsonian. And Dr. Dwandalyn Reese goes through the different artifacts and tells these stories. Um, and Salema Masakala is the host. So anyway, it was, it was one of those moments where it's like it was a kernel of an idea. And then you realize like, wow, the Smithsonian's going to be able to do this so much better and all these different artists, everything uh, from Wilco to Kelly Rowland have been now a part of this program. And I, I wanted to point it out because again, it's something that starts with like one person writing would not have been able to do that. That kind of takes a museum and a, and a whole history and a whole bunch of artists to bring that to life. So um, that, that's a, a project that I love being at SiriusXM and Pandora and doing because it's kind of pulling all those different pipes together to create something. I was yeah. just gonna ask if you had anything to promote. <laughs> All music is black music. I love it. Yeah, I have actually that's been somewhere in my in my in the oeuvre, you know, around the social media stuff or whatever I've been seeing, but I, I had heard that um that that title. But yeah, thanks so much. And um this has been great. And and then we as my pitch always is we need to get you out to Boise, Idaho to like and we'll, we can get you know, chapter and, and verse out there. We could get, oh. uh, you know, out the, I, the festival actually, with Larry. Larry, I know, yeah. I know it's a complete long shot, but boy, wouldn't we do a um, we do a podcast, just an episode of this podcast called Bar Fight, and the idea is you get three people and one topic, and you argue about it. And the last one was story songs, and I got I got to do my rant about how much I hate Piano Man. <laughs> love it, love it. Yeah, but, but you'd, you'd be very good at that. That, yeah, I know. Yeah, it would be. I feel like you might win the bar fight. I don't know. We don't. We don't declare a winner. But no, there's never a winner in the bar fight. But, but yeah. my friend Andrew Dansby, who's the uh, pop music critic and, and, and entertainment writer at the Houston Chronicle, he will go on and on about how he hates the rhyme tonic and gin. You know, he's like, you can't just change that for a rhyme. It's called chicken tonic. Come on, Billy. <laughs> no, my issue with Piano Man is simple. Hey, let's go see that piano player who thinks we're pathetic. <laughs> i have a soft spot for a uh, piano man but uh I, I, I will leave you with this when i was at madison square garden billy joel did his residency there and i 
was not historically the biggest Billy Joel fan. And I, you know, but I went to see him and the self-awareness was through the roof. And unlike song four, he goes, this next one's a new one. And he goes, I'm just kidding. There's no new ones. <laughs> but anyway, it was a high points for self-awareness for Billy Joel. I'll give him that. I moved to Seattle in 1993 with two goals, to start a newspaper about motorcycles and to become a rock and roll journalist and eventually end up writing for Rolling Stone. The motorcycle part was actually pretty easy for a while. All I did was show up, find some other motorcycle guys, ask them to write stuff, introduce me around, use my wife's money to buy a new computer and start printing the thing and then run out of money, get into fights with the other motorcycle guys, try to reinvent myself three times, and then quit. The rock and roll thing, it was also weirdly easy to get into. I showed up again, this time with some clips, acted like I knew what I was doing, and here's the key, I aimed low. I didn't try to get into the rocket, which was the legendary grunge bible of the time, or the more professional Seattle Weekly. I hooked up with some lower grade publications, and off I went. Within three months, I was pretty swamped and barely getting paid, of course. But getting into the big time, that was another thing entirely. That meant getting past the flannel-clad gatekeepers of 1990s Seattle. You know, they'd all gone to high school together. They didn't have any room for some California interloper. No Soundgarden all-access lanyard for this guy. But as long as you're willing to work for $25 and free CDs, Seattle's minor leagues were pretty wide open in the 1990s. There was this short period when it looked like it was all going to happen. I was a star reporter for a few since-forgotten music publications, the publisher of my own motorcycle magazine, and had just bought a 1993 Ducati 900SS. Because if you're going to have your own motorcycle magazine, you can't be riding a Honda. And then one day, my two dreams collided and produced the most embarrassing piece of new journalism ever written. Here's how it worked back then. You went to your editor and you pitched some ideas. Shows or CDs you wanted to review, bands you wanted to interview. If you were smart, you tried for bands with a shot at the big time. If you were me, you interviewed bands you liked because that made the free CDs and the spots on the guest list way more meaningful. And what if you hit it off during the interview? Well, then you'd get to pretend you were friends with your favorite band until you realized that all you ever talked to them about was the band. If your pitch was approved, you called a publicist and then you set up an interview either by phone or in person. In person was of course better because how are you supposed to become friends with a band over the phone? So it was that I found myself scheduled to interview a band called Gashuffer. Cover story for a magazine called Pandemonium. This was a big deal in my Bush League world because Gashuffer was locally huge and threatening to go national. I went to see them and I quickly understood why. Their live show was unbelievable mostly because of their lead singer, who was this little guy with these sideburns that basically almost met under his chin, who careened around the room like a man possessed by demons or a very angry chimpanzee. They billed themselves as punk rock, but they were much more. They were swampy and bluesy and loud, and it was total anarchy. They'd already gotten press in National Magazine. This story, oh, this was going to put me on the map. And maybe we'd become friends. Hey, I don't know. Hanging out with Gashoffer, having him over my house. I could show him my new bike. I think they'd like that. So that morning, I decided to take a quick ride. I was still getting used to my new motorcycle. And frankly, I'm going to be honest here, it was way too much motorcycle for me. I was a menace. And I don't mean that in a good way. 
I thundered foolishly through some residential neighborhoods, zooming around corners to practice my leaning. I'm sure the bike was embarrassed. Probably more so when I stupidly punched it at a roundabout, right about the same time a hippie on a bike entered it from the other side. We met in the middle. The hippie flew through the air and landed on me. We both slid through the rest of the roundabout on top of my Ducati, which was now lying on its side, the bright red fiberglass of its fairing scraped almost completely off. What a gentle accident, man, the hippie said. I disagreed. His bicycle was unharmed, and so was he, so he assured me I wouldn't be getting any calls from insurance companies and rode off. I picked my bike up and stood next to it, shaking. That's when I noticed that two of my fingers were sticking out at a weird angle. One trip to the emergency room and a bottle of Vicodin later, I was on my way to do the biggest interview of my life with Gas Huffer. The only problem was I couldn't remember why. The good part was I didn't care. The Vicodin took care of that. Unfortunately, it also took care of the part where I had skills and was a professional. I got there, I sat down and tried to jump right ahead to the part where we were friends already, me and Gas Huffer. Told him I just wrecked my motorcycle, thinking maybe that'd give me some punk rock cred. No, they just looked at me. It wasn't that they all hated me, not at first. The guitar player, who was this legendary Seattle musician, was actually really nice. So was the drummer, who I could tell understood how the media game works, probably better than I did. I think I heard he works in advertising now. The problem for them was while they all understood what they were there for, an interview, eventual feature story, my grasp of the concept was Vicodin fuzzy, and they didn't make it easy. The lead singer, this legendary wild man, turned out to be one of those guys who's basically silent unless he's performing, shoved his hands in the pockets of this new skateboarding code he'd gotten from a sponsor, just kind of looked at me warily. And the bass player, this cool psychobilly cowboy on stage, off stage was just a big guy who didn't like me. But somehow we got through it. The next day I sat down to transcribe the interview. For the non-journalists out there, this was easily the worst part of journalism in the 1990s. Boring, lengthy, and unless you owned a transcription machine, really frustrating. But you know, it's way easier when you hit play and you don't hear anything. You realize that in your drug-addled haze, you forgot to hit record the day before. I had nothing. So let's get up to speed. I had no recording of the interview I'd done with Gashoffer the day before, which meant I had two options. The first, smarter option, was to call their publicist and explain what happened. No. Come on. Let's be honest. Call the publicist and make up a lie about why I had no recording. I could blame it on the recorder. It malfunctioned, which would be an excuse about 5% less irresponsible than the truth. I'd ask if we could reschedule the interview, hopefully in time to get the story done before deadline. Even with all this Vicodin haze around me, I realized this was not going to work. Gashoffer already didn't like me. They thought I was weird and unprofessional, and they were correct. What were the odds they'd want to sit down with me again? Option two was to wing it. Write the story as best I could from memory. I had none. And hope that what came out of it wouldn't get me, and pandemonium sued. Of course, I went with option two. And here's the good, and by good I mean horrendous, part. At that time, I was the hugest fan of new journalism. I don't know if you remember it. It was gigantic in the 1960s. Tom Wolfe, Gay Talese, skilled nonfiction writers incorporating fiction methods into journalism, putting themselves in the story, creating characters, real catnip for young writers who think they're geniuses. Seemed like a great idea. No, better than great. 
This would be the feature that got me noticed. Hello, Rolling Stone. No, no, I won't be needing moving expenses. How much are one-bedroom apartments in Manhattan these days? So I sat down and imagined how Tom Wolfe would handle this. Typed out two lines. The only lines, thank God, I now remember. Gas huffer and motorcycles. Gas huffer and motorcycles. Call the Pulitzer Committee. It's time to shine. I am seriously embarrassed by those two lines. Thank God I can't remember the rest. Because what I do know is from that point, I launched into the worst Tom Wolfe impression of the past 50 years. And let me tell you something. The competition has been fierce. Here's the most embarrassing part, though. Right up until I saw this story in print, I was positive this was going to be the feature that got me on the map. It was so different from what everyone else was doing. Them with their bland interviews. Same old story. How'd you guys first get together? How are you handling the buzz around your band? I was light years ahead. A genius. An artist. Of course, now I look at it and the question I think of now is much more simple. Why didn't some editor stop me? Well, I can tell you why. Pandemonium, like 99% of the publications that were born, lived, and died in the 1990s, was run by a couple of young guys who were working their tails off and didn't have enough money to hire an editor. They depended on their writers to take care of, you know, the writing stuff. They expected them to not write crazy stuff. Or at least not that kind of crazy stuff. Crazy stuff was actually encouraged. Opaque, weird stuff without merit was not. The thing actually ran and mercifully quickly dropped out of sight. It didn't put me on the map, and for that I am thankful. If the guys at Gashuffer liked it or hated it, I never heard about it because I never talked to them again. About their band, their skateboarding coats, my motorcycle, about anything. Breaking the unwritten law of 1990s minor league rock and roll journalism, which states that when you write about a band, you're supposed to show up at their next show, say hi, and wait for them to thank you for the awesome feature article. Amazingly, this didn't end my career in rock and roll. Age did. Within five years, I was a regular contributor to The Stranger, which was the biggest alternative newspaper in Seattle. But that's not as cool as it sounds, or maybe it could have been if I was cooler and got invited to stranger parties, but I didn't. I was just a guy who hustled and interviewed bands. And by then, I decided that big-time rock and roll journalism probably meant pretending sync is really great, and I couldn't see myself doing that. Not that I ever got a chance to say no. Rolling Stone never called. Maybe they saw my gas offer story. Welcome back. I am traumatized from reliving that little story that I just told there. But yeah. hopefully uh, the shine of having rock and roll Zelig Bill Crandall tell his story <laughs> overshadowed my sorry tale. Oh, yes. The gas hopper. And they really are gone, I guess. I don't, I mean, I remember they were pretty big in Seattle for a while. They were big. And yeah, um, I mentioned this in the store, but one of the things that struck me when I saw them in person through my, you know, Vicodin haze was um, they had, they had been sponsored by a skateboarding wear company. So they were all wearing brand new skateboarding jackets, which at the time, I guess it's kind of <laughs> like, a, um, it's like a snowboarding jacket, you know, just like a, one of those sure, yeah. type of, <laughs> it seemed a little off, you know, it seemed a little out of character for them. But I guess, you know, if you're a fan and someone sponsors you, you take the stuff. <laughs> you take the jacket and then you have some gas and then you put on some show. And you interview. But yeah, they uh, they did disappear. Um, you know, one of the guitar player, 
uh, he was an old, like a real founding father, Seattle rock and roll guy. Um, but he got sick. He got MS, and I haven't heard how he's yeah. doing. The other guys, I don't know what happened to them. You know, a lot of these Seattle guys who seemed like they were going to devote their lives to rock and roll just got jobs eventually. I know. Families, jobs. Yeah, they had to get jobs. Yeah. A shocking number of them became graphic designers. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It's a little weird. Anyhow. Well, we're here to say thanks for listening. Thanks for putting in the time on that correspondent piece, Mr. Rosen. We do want to thank uh, Brett Battistain of Eavesdrop uh, Podcasting Network that we are on. And Let me give a little plug here for Brett. Go to Eavesdrop yeah. and check out some of Brett's other podcasts because he is not afraid to tackle some odd subjects. An entire podcast about Keanu Reeves. Yes, we do Keanu. Where they're <laughs> that's a pretty fun one. Um, is and- it one now about all of all John Carpenter movies? Last time, one of the last times we were in the studio, there was just a list of those movies up yeah. on up on his whiteboard, and we couldn't figure out what, the, what it was all about. But it was, yeah, a real movie aficionado, definitely. Yes. I, I, though I am not as uh, skilled at saying Battistain as my co-host here. Well, it's, all my time I spend with Brett. Yes, he's a very nice guy, um, and he has has been, has been nice enough to uh, keep us on his network now for like. A couple of years. We started this thing um, under a slightly different title and kind of concept back in uh, before time. January, January of 2020, we aired our first episode, and then nothing was that different then, was it? I don't know. Now, now we're here in our second season of Story Forward, but uh, we oh, we want to thank. Mr. Jared Bostrom, too, who does our editing, along with Mr. Brett. Um, we want to thank Mackenzie Heilman and our, the rest of our team for helping out with social media things. Oh, yes. Tell us about if social if media. If you're looking for us on social media, you can find the Story Forward podcast at Story Forward on Twitter, uh, at Story.Forward on Instagram. Uh, we have a Facebook group page as well that you can go uh, hang out on. If you're looking for two hosts, uh, you can find Mr. Christian Wynn on Instagram only at Christian Wynn. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter against my better judgment yeah. at that. I do have Facebook and I do have uh, Twitter that I just don't use. So you can, if you really want to find me at those other spots, you can find me, but I may not answer you. Yeah. Please refuse, Nick. Uh, we want to thank our guest, Bill Crandall. It was really great to see him, even if it was on a laptop screen. Yeah, and so we were getting into the, I don't know, the latter part of the season now. So we just have a few more episodes left, but we've been really enjoying this deep dive into the music. And yeah, it's coming, Tree Fort and Story Fort are coming up. We're going to have some more good stories, including some from some of our past guests mm. on this podcast. Um, so, and, and also from Mr. Larry Rosen. Mm-hmm. Really involved on, in various events, and I'll be running around nervously trying to make sure everything runs on time. But carrying uh, PA equipment from one venue to the other. Yeah, or my my, my flat screen TV. Last year, I was I could be seen walking down Main Street with my flat one of my flat screen TVs from from my collection, taking it from one <laughs> venue to another. So I, uh, I you never know what I might be carrying around. Well, hopefully we'll see you all there. And as for us, that wraps up this episode. And on the way out, I'd like to remind you all of one thing, and that is to keep the story moving forward. That is correct. We shall. And thanks again for listening.